Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Canada's inflation picture has recently seen notable changes. One of the key recent highlights is the latest CPI data, which came in at 4.3%, the lowest since August 2021. This comes following the second consecutive rate pause from the Bank of Canada, perhaps backing the central bank's decision. Looking ahead, what can we expect to hear from the Fed? And how is all of this impacting how portfolio managers are allocating to stocks and bonds and their geographic preferences around the world? Portfolio manager David Tulk from Fidelity's global asset allocation team joins us today to discuss all of this and more, including a look into his short, medium, and long-term investment mentality. David and team manage a suite of funds for both retail and institutional investors. And please note, today's discussion was originally presented as a webcast for institutional clients, with a slide reference partway through. Also today, with host Brian Borsakowski, David explains on how rate-sensitive different parts of the economy is, and also shares how the GAA team is currently positioned. They do not think the Bank of Canada, Federal Reserve, and other central banks are likely to start cutting interest rates by the end of the year. And in their funds, they are defensive overall, protecting still against inflation. Selective allocations are made to be offensive, and lately, emerging markets' equities have provided this. Today's podcast was recorded on April 19th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start off with the big economic news of the week, that 4.3% annual CPI data. A lot of people might be breathing a sigh of relief. What do you make of uh, of this number? I'd say that the release is a step in the right direction. Um, headline inflation has cooled from its recent peak and is expected to uh, cool further for no other reason than the comparisons to uh, each month from the year prior uh, will favor the headline CPI print. But I don't think that we are anywhere close to being out of the woods yet because what also was released were a bunch of core measures that still show uh, a fair degree of persistence in underlying inflation. And I think this is the uh, bigger challenge facing the Bank of Canada is that getting those core measures back down to a level that they're comfortable with um, ultimately is going to necessitate, I think, a lot more weakness in the economy and likely uh, a pretty sizable increase in unemployment as well. So that's really what um, the Bank of Canada is uh, focusing on. This is something that they've you know, said to us as well, that we're in still the easy part of the disinflationary process coming off of the peak uh, to the levels that we're sitting at today. But I think the road ahead for inflation um, is likely to be a little bit more challenging. And uh, that's definitely informing how we look at the outlook for the Bank of Canada's overnight rate. So let's talk about that. Um, they did have two pauses. Do you think, you know, based on what you're saying, could there be an increase? Uh, some people even think bank central banks could start cutting rates at some point soon. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, this is what makes the market. And in this particular case, uh, we are not in agreement with how the market has uh, priced the Bank of Canada, has priced the Fed as well. So the market um, believes, at least the bond market, that we're going to get this immaculate decline in inflation and that uh, the Bank of Canada and the Fed and other central banks around the world are likely able to start cutting interest rates uh, by the end of the year. And I just don't think that that is the most likely scenario unless something really, really goes wrong in the economy. And why that's uh, not the case, in my view, is that uh, that inflation story is still going to be persistent. So uh, Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, said this quite clearly as well, that you know they're not going to be happy at 3% for inflation. Their target is 2 Yes, they have a symmetric band of plus or minus 1% around that. But... The midpoint of the target is is what they are uh, hoping to achieve. And when we look at the inflation dynamics and that stickiness that we anticipate to continue to keep core inflation elevated, it just doesn't allow the Bank of Canada, uh, whose primary focus at this stage is to get inflation back down to a low and comfortable level. So I think I understand you know, why the market uh, would be looking towards cuts. I think something that markets have been conditioned on in recent cycles is that at the first sign of financial market turbulence or at the first sign that some other policy is beginning to slow the economy, or at least the central bank policy is starting to slow the economy, the the pivot emerges where uh, you get that uh, policy response in the form of lower interest rates. And that is something that had worked in prior cycles because inflation wasn't really that far away from where uh, policymakers would like it. But that's a very different case today. Again, it's that higher and stickier inflation that central banks have to contend with. So, you know, the market model that has helped you in the last couple of cycles, I just don't think is as applicable um, to, the, to today's environment. And I think that will eventually start to influence how the market prices central banks over the balance of the year. Is there any um, danger maybe from investors, uh, market watchers, maybe getting too comfortable with what's going on and saying, okay, well, things are turning the corner. Um, inflation is getting under control. Um, you know, is, is, is there any concern there that, that people can get too complacent based on maybe some of the better news that they're seeing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, complacency um, certainly shows up in every phase of the market and through every cycle. And I think maybe what we've been conditioned uh, as a result of the pandemic is to recognize that economic events move very quickly. So, you know, the global economy effectively shut down over a very short period of time and the policy response, as dramatic as it was to support the economy, also happened over, you know, a very short period of time. And now, as we've worked our way through uh, the hard part of the pandemic, and as you've seen policy start to normalize, you know, I think We've seen one of the largest uh, increases in, in policy rates over a very short period of time as well in, in history. So, you know, we're, we're used to seeing these things happen fairly quickly. But, you know, now when you think of where uh, the themes are, are starting to assert themselves, those are naturally, you know, not as short lived. So coming back to the, the theme that economic weakness um, is, is necessary to slow the economy down, you know, that it takes a while for that to happen. So, you know, you have a corporation that 
is still likely struggling with labor shortages. Uh, so when they think about how they manage their labor force, they know that supply is an issue so that at the first sign of weakness, they're maybe not as inclined to let go of a bunch of workers. So they're going to hold on to those workers into uh, a weakening demand environment longer than they would have otherwise in prior cycles. So that just extends the horizon over which this adjustment takes place. So I think the market, again, is, is conditioned into seeing things happen very quickly. And uh, right now, it is going to take a lot longer because policy inevitably needs that longer time period to work its way through the entire economy. So that's just something that um, we'll have to, we have to try to evolve our thinking and, and how to look at that. Uh, speaking of things that happen quickly, uh, you know, the banking crisis that everybody was talking about uh, not too long ago, not many people are talking about it anymore. It came on quick. It, it seemed to disappear. Um, but I guess the issue with that was partly, you know, the, the rapid increase in rising rates put pressure on a certain sector of the economy, a certain, you know, industry. Um, so maybe where are we with the banking crisis, the regional banking crisis here? And um, are there other potential cracks or issues in the market that uh, maybe you're looking at that could have come as a result of this rapid um, you know, rate rise? Yeah, before we get to what shoe might next might be next to drop, I think it's an important point that you referenced about how this banking crisis sort of seemed to have arrived and disappeared very quickly. And I think it also might be what is driving market expectations and looking for, for interest rate cuts. So you know, what we saw through the banking crisis, you're right, is that uh, a secular or a very sharp increase in interest rates revealed some low-hanging fruit in terms of segments of the economy that were not only very rate sensitive, but maybe had some idiosyncratic vulnerabilities as well. And, you know, part of that, you know, credit tightening that you saw that really impacted regional banks in the U.S., you know, part of that is very desired on the part of central banks because, you know, what are central banks trying to do? They're trying to slow the economy down. How do they do that? They raise interest rates to raise the cost of capital. So banks are uh, less likely to lend into the economy. So, you know, that transmission mechanism is exactly what central banks want to have happen. But obviously, they don't want to cause systemic risk in the banking system because that causes confidence in the banking system to disappear. You get bank runs, you get a bunch of other really nasty things. So, you know, the, the Fed in, in this case had to try to calibrate their policy response so they can segment their tools to say that, look, we need to still tighten credit, we need to slow the economy down. So that's what monetary policy is supposed to do. But, you know, we also want to be able to make sure the financial system is, is safe and trusted. So that's why they have those liquidity facilities that they were able to bring um, back into vogue. So, you know, the, the common way of saying that is that the Fed proved that they can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, so that, you know, that's why that particular part of the economy is sort of back to operating normally, at least from the perspective of a macro investor. But, you know, coming back to your question, I think it, it also uh, deserves close scrutiny that, you know, the wider theme of credit tightening and the wider theme of different parts of the economy being vulnerable to higher interest rates uh, deserves, you know, a lot of scrutiny. So I don't know exactly what the next shoe uh, it, it, it could, they could drop. It could be something in real estate. It could be something in venture capital. I mean, I think this is one of those things that um, people only really know with the benefit of hindsight. But I know that there are vulnerabilities. And when we think about how we want to position our portfolios in this type of environment, it's the bigger theme of tighter 
policy and higher interest rates is what we want to key off of. And that's something that um, does keep us thinking that we want to still be somewhat defensive, um, despite what we've seen, certainly in, in equity markets in recent months. Great. I'm going to ask about the positioning in one second, but just maybe to wrap up kind of the economic discussion here is where do you think, so if inflation is sort of going to be choppy, it's not going to go down to maybe where people would like it to, what will it take, do you think, for some of those core inflationary numbers to finally fall? Does that require another rate increase by the Bank of Canada at some point? What are you going to look at to say, hey, maybe we actually are, you know, past this point of high inflation? Yeah, so I mean, the bank told us very specifically that they are in uh, data dependent mode. And when Tiff Macklem spoke this week on the heels of the uh, inflation report, he, I think he did try his best to push back against market pricing um, and try to make sure that there was at least some probability of an interest rate hike um, still on the table. And I mean, that makes a certain amount of sense in any environment because uh, a central bank doesn't want to entirely just cut off one of their options. They want to retain as much flexibility when setting policy as possible. Um, so the bank wants us to keep the door open and really let you know the data drive uh, our expectation and ultimately the central bank's decision. So that's you know the first point to make. I think you know the second point um, to make as well is that you know we're in that level of policy generally that is broadly construed as being you know, neutral to somewhat restrictive. And that sounds like a science where you can quantify that to the single basis point, but in actual fact, it's one of the squishier things about monetary policy. So, you know, central banks think they've calibrated it correctly, but again, we've gone through this pretty massive change in the way the economy um, has, has, has been operating through the pandemic and as we've come out of the pandemic. So who really knows you know, how rate sensitive different parts of the economy are? I mean, that's where the bank itself is trying to fumble around and, and calibrate policy um, correctly. So they think that they are somewhat restrictive, but you know, ultimately they're going to take their cue from the economic data. So that's certainly a major part of how the Bank of Canada is likely to operate. I know that's not giving people a lot of clarity and that's probably uh, intentional to some degree, because nobody really knows with a high degree of certainty. Um, but I will also make the point that as part of that transmission mechanism, I think what's needed is time. And this is where, again, coming back to some of our earlier conversations, where we think about you know, uh, uh, the way an interest rate moves through an economy, where there are certainly some segments that move faster. So anything that's very rate sensitive would certainly move faster. Uh, but also, you know, you need to get that critical mass of industry or of the economy more broadly to start feeling the effects of tighter policy. But, you know, where it ultimately has to go to bring uh, inflation back down, and this goes back to how the CPI basket is constructed, it's services. And a lot of services can be tied to the labor market and wages. So, you know, the very clear indication of, of the labor market uh, displaying weakness, that'll give central banks a great deal more comfort, at least insofar as knowing that uh, that's likely to have a more durable and lasting impact on slowing inflation. Hello, Fidelity Connects podcast listeners. Five questions and five charts. The latest white paper from members of the Fidelity Asset Allocation Group is now available. Will inflation remain elevated? When will policy interest rates be cut? Fidelity Portfolio Managers David Wolf and David Talk 
and Institutional Portfolio Manager Elon Collette highlight answers to these questions and more using some of their favorite charts. Head to fidelity.ca slash expert insights and click on the asset allocation tab to read the latest GA white paper today. And thank you for listening to Fidelity Connects Podcasts. Great. Um, so let's let's talk about how this is uh, impacting the way that you're investing, all of this, where, where you're finding opportunities. I know we have a slide that maybe we can just bring up to to get this this part started. And uh, where are you finding opportunities now? How are you taking all of this information and um, putting it into a into a uh, you know the decisions that you're making? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so just for everybody's benefit on on the the call. So uh, this is a diagram of our positioning for uh, one of our portfolios. It's a 60-40 portfolio. Uh, so 60% equities, 40% bonds. Uh, all the bars uh, that you see represent the overweights and the underweight. So you know what do we like? What do we shy away from um, relative to the benchmark? Um, so I'll make a couple of high-level uh, comments, and I know there's a lot that we can dig into in terms of the individual uh, overweights and underweights. But you know, as as I as I hinted at earlier, in a word, we're still defensive. Uh, we are somewhat underweight um, equities, but as you can see, not dramatically so, um, because being consistently underweight equities is really just fighting risk premia and timing the market when it comes to some of these bigger themes about recession, uh, I think that's that's very difficult to do. So uh, we've tried to calibrate our equity exposure to reflect the macro uncertainty, um, but not overreact to it. Um, the second element of the portfolio that you see uh, is that we are overweight um, short-term, uh, so cash uh, positions. And this is something that, again, uh, maybe touches on the wider debate we can have about bonds and duration, but um, to say it succinctly up front is that we think there's more uh, comfort and certainty in the short-term part of the market relative to having that larger uh, duration position as well. Um, and then the best way that I think we can reflect that theme of defensiveness that we want um, shown in the portfolio um, is on the very right-hand side of the slide, which is our positioning related to the Canadian dollar. Um, so we are underweight um, Canadian assets across the portfolio, and then by extension, that means that we're underweight the currency. And this brings up the wider point about saying that the Canadian dollar is a relatively cyclical, high beta currency. And if we wanna think of periods where uh, the market is responding to stresses in the economy, those are periods typically where the Canadian dollar underperforms. And I know this is an environment that we've seen in the last couple of months where in actual fact, the US dollar has retreated. But if we look at uh, the Canadian dollar relative to the US dollar and relative to the wider G10, the Canadian dollar really hasn't fared that much better than the US dollar. So the real appreciation in currencies we've seen are in uh, the euro and the yen and the Swiss franc, not necessarily the Canadian dollar. So when we think about that as a way to bring defense into um, this particular portfolio, I think that's the most efficient, effective way uh, that we can do that. So that's the way that, again, we're, we're, we're responding to the environment and seeing an opportunity to protect uh, the underlying capital of this portfolio. And it's, it's interesting, um, if you're still buying bonds, given that rate hikes seem to be nearing their end. So how do you approach bonds today? 
Yeah, so this is one of the big debates um, that we have on our team. It's the big debate that we have with our, our researchers uh, across the global asset allocation group. So it reflects a lot, of, a lot of voices, a lot of opinions, a lot of theory, a lot of thought, a lot of market uh, experience as well. And where we've come down on the debate is that at some point, you do want to have a larger duration exposure across these funds. We just don't think that we're there quite yet. And uh, part of that, again, is the certainty that we have with respect to short-term um, cash levels. So you're getting you know, 5% with a high degree of certainty. Taking a, a flyer on, say, a 10-year bond uh, at its current yield is maybe a little bit less um, compelling, given that, again, if inflation were to find more momentum or if the economy doesn't slow over the horizon that the market thinks, um, those yields could be vulnerable to, to moving higher. So, you know, that's really the, the core of the debate when it comes down to uh, investing in duration, investing in bonds relative to um, short-term securities. Um, but you will note, though, on that slide, I mean, we do still have protection against inflation. Again, just respecting the volatility embedded in future inflation prints and uh, holding real return bonds or tips uh, in these type of portfolios is a nice hedge um, against that. We also have um, some credit exposures as well. And this is sort of, you know, one of the areas that we can be a little bit uh, more optimistic or, or have some offense reflected where, you know, we're working with active managers. So having a broad beta exposure to high yield into a slowing economy or in, into the likelihood of a recession, you know, that, that could be risky, but having access to underlying managers who benefit from an absolute army of researchers finding superior credits to bring into the portfolio, that alpha generation process through security selection, I think is a really uh, powerful tool that we have that we can bring into those portfolios. So we can balance maybe some uncertainty on the beta front uh, with the alpha that comes through um, security selection. So we do have some of those plus or credit um, exposures still included in the fund to, to generate that yield to reflect um, positive corporate fundamentals under the surface. Just a, a couple of questions on, on on the equity side. You know, Canada underweight relative to the benchmark. I, I'm wondering why is that, and uh, you know, maybe if, if Canada's fiscal situation um, is bothering you at all, or what, what you sort of make of of where we're at uh, with that respect. Yeah, no, it's uh, something that we've been worried about um, for quite some time, not just on the fiscal side, but certainly on the wider economy as well. So. You know, again, going back to the nature of the shock that the global economy is wrestling with, it's a, a very dramatic increase in interest rates. And we need to think about, you know, who's most vulnerable in that environment. So if you think about Canada's uh, household uh, sector, obviously have, has added a great deal of debt over not just the current pandemic period, but well before that. Um, Canada never really went through the same kind of deleveraging that the United States went through after the great financial crisis or that Europe went through over that same horizon. So it's a vulnerability as far as we're concerned. And the catalyst to that vulnerability ultimately is, um, is higher interest rates. So we, are, we have seen at least the housing market cool pretty sharply. There are some you know, seasonal factors that might give it a little bit of a, 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 a renewed breath as spring takes hold, but I think the wider trend, unfortunately, is where 
Canadians realize they've taken on far too much debt. They're struggling to pay that back as, as that sort of five-year mortgage term starts to roll through the data in the next couple of years. And that's, in our view, a contributor to the expectation of, of slow economic growth. So that's certainly a motivation um, for us uh, being underweight Canada. On the fiscal side, again, this goes back to um, the release of the budget, um, where on one side you have um, the Bank of Canada trying to slow the economy down, and there's still a fair degree of fiscal stimulus coming on the other side of that. And that stimulus has also been accompanied by you know, a pretty significant uh, forecast for deficits into the future. And I can argue that maybe this is not the right macro environment to really um, be adding that kind of stimulus. And also, it doesn't leave us in a particularly strong financial position. So in spite of some of the net debt figures that uh, are represented in the budget, you know, when you, those typically, again, will incorporate, you know, the assets within CPP or other provincial pension plans. So that's maybe not as um, clear of, of what the true debt dynamic looks like on the part of Canadian uh, governments. And I think the other part of the story that extends from that is that, you know, Canada doesn't have the largesse that's afforded to the U.S. economy in terms of running um, high levels of deficits and debt. So Canada still is a small, small open market commodity linked economy. So the prospect of a you know, fiscal risk premium at some point returning to Canada, uh, that can't be entirely uh, dismissed. So that's another motivation from our perspective of being you know, underweight Canadian assets. And, and that was maybe more relevant on the bond side of the portfolio, but it can also extend um, to the currency as well. And you are overweight emerging markets. Um, why is that? And are there certain areas that are looking interesting to you? So this goes back to, um, I think, some of the optimism or offense we want to have in the portfolio. So uh, when you run balanced portfolios, there's certainly uh, an advantage to having elements of defense that, that are, are consistent with our overarching macro view. But we also want to have selected allocations that can uh, provide that offense as well. So you know, emerging markets, as well as the credit piece that I mentioned earlier, those are examples um, of that. So when it comes to emerging markets, I think, again, this is a little bit more idiosyncratic to the current cycle where, you know, you think about how far, you know, China and other emerging markets have progressed through their own independent um, business cycles. So China's adding stimulus into the economy. That's pretty unique among uh, other central banks when we think about it through the monetary lens. Uh, there is, again, the reopening narrative that accompanies the expiration or at least the termination of the zero COVID policy. So there are, there's a little bit more of a, a positive growth impulse um, that I think can exist within emerging markets. Um, obviously, there's still a very tight elastic that binds emerging markets to the rest of the economy or the global economy, which means that there's a limit to how far EM can outperform especially if the rest of the world is slowing down. But from a tactical perspective, I think there is some appeal in having that exposure uh, reflected today. And the specific way in which we're trying to get that, again, same way we think about credit, that you know, emerging markets is a very diverse um, set of, of economies. So we want to certainly use an active manager as the building block in that allocation because they're able to 
really leverage all of the security specific research that we have access to um, to bring really positive securities or stories into the port into the portfolio. So we're not just taking blind beta risk. We're in fact taking that more nuanced view of of having strong securities that can uh, complement what we do from a top down perspective. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question. We've just got a minute left. Um, what are you feeling good about? There's lots to be you know, concerned about. What, what are you optimistic about right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly, I mean, maybe this is not something that everyone should feel optimistic about, but I'm optimistic about the volatility. I'm optimistic about the fact that we have such a diverse range of opinion reflected in the market, because from the perspective of an asset allocator with all the research that we have access to, it's this type of market where we can develop an edge, where we can see what the market is thinking, especially if sentiment is playing a big factor in how it's swinging from one extreme to the other. So that gives us opportunities. So broadly speaking, having that uncertainty and having something that we can respond to as long-term investors, where we can see through short periods of volatility to express medium-term themes, uh, fills me with the optimism of responding to that um, by bringing decisions into these portfolios. Great, I'm going to leave it there. I'm sure we could uh, talk for another half an hour or even longer, but uh, we'll save that for our next chat. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.